I ran, I'm an alcoholic. It gives me a great pleasure to introduce this uh, gentleman. Uh, he was present at uh, his sponsee, who's not here, the 25th anniversary uh, in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, Tom is also one of our out-of-state trustees at Dr. Bob's house. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say uh, enough good things about uh, Tom. I probably couldn't even count him on one hand. I don't know. <laughs> I've been looking through all the books. I can't find a darn thing to say about him. But, but uh, you know, uh, he's got a powerful message. And I know the work he does in North Carolina. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, I'm proud to be a friend of his. And, and his, grand, his sponsor spoke here uh, yesterday. And uh, we'll cease from uh, uh, Prince Albert. Is that in a can or is that... Uh, is that... Uh, Without any further ado, uh, let's give Tom a big round of applause from Minneapolis. Hi, friends. I'm Tom, an alcoholic, and, uh, and delighted to be here. I've, I, it struck me that I've been going to uh, international since '65. And I'm, uh, I'm corrections enough that I've been on most post office walls. <laughs> this is the closest I've ever come to talking about corrections at an international. And uh, in a way, that's meaningful to me. Meaningful to me, because I never have wanted to be typecast and put in a box. Very important to me to be a real member of Alcoholics Anonymous doing real work right in the heart of the program. Uh, <laughs> I don't normally write stuff down, but I have to when I've got a time constraint. Because I swear to God, I can talk all day. But, but I, I have a hard time with 20 or 30 minutes. And uh, let, let me tell you what we're going to do. I brought a sidekick because we used alcoholic planning on putting this together. I had a 12 o'clock meeting here, and I've got a 1 o'clock meeting at the Civic Center in Oshkosh or something. <laughs> no, just across the street. So all we're going to do is split the program, and uh, I couldn't have a better partner because if we brought all of the sobriety rep rep represented in that sponsorship line that Ray alluded to, uh, we'd set this place on fire. My sponsor is 40, about 48 years, and, and his sponsor is about 48 years and 10 days. <laughs> and I'm 43. And uh, this guy is 36. So, and there's a few more around. So I, we really could set this on fire. And, and, and what I'm going to try to do is set this 30 minutes on fire, not with all the wonder of it, but just trying to get through it. And so I'll probably tell you more than I know in 30 minutes. I want to do, do, do two things. One is just allude to the history a little bit, not with dates and all that stuff. That's tedious to me. If, you, if it doesn't get brought to life with anecdotes. I want to share with you and then pose a question, just a, a little thing I picked up from GSO in the, in the, in the literature stuff that, that goes back to the beginnings of AA out of San Quentin, well-known story, You're usually mixed up and told a lot of different ways. But it's an important story because it's where AA in prison started. And I want to read just one thing from... Uh, I'm going to read just a little bit, then I'm going to get into to, uh, to sharing what I want to share about 
my, my relationship in corrections. Uh, Clint Duffy, I had the pleasure of knowing Clint Duffy. He and I did some work together years ago before he died, and uh, what a great joy to, to meet that man and to work with him. He was a marvelous fellow. Um, in March of 41, the warden at San Quentin, who at that time was Clint T. Duffy, took the great step of introducing a program to alcoholic inmates. From, from that has grown a prison program in, which now constitutes two, 208 inmate groups with a membership of 10,000. That was in March of 1953. Shortly after the start of the group in Quentin, Warden Duffy made, wrote the following. The repeal of prohibition did not, as many believed, <laughs> result in, uh, in uh, lessening crimes directly due to drinking. There continued to be committed to penal institutions, a large percentage of men, except when under the influence of liquor, were law-abiding citizens, men who lose all control over their actions as soon as they have taken the first drink, men who periodically went on drinking sprees for periods as long as several months, during which time they neither knew nor cared much where they were nor what they did. These victims of the pernicious alcoholic habit being totally irresponsible during these periods, commits acts ranging from writing checks without sufficient funds or borrowing an automobile, in quotes, to more, to more serious offenses too numerous to mention. Sobered, they are shocked to learn they're in trouble. Their remorse is genuine, but a serious law violation or perhaps a, a, a series of violations occurred. It, it, it was apparent to us that the alcoholic presented a problem of rehabilitation which the prison program was not meeting. Our Board of Prison Terms and Pros was well aware of the importance of continuing the, the continuing to such men after release on parole. If, as Mr. Alan Moore, State Director of Parole for California, has often said, we can keep our parolees sober, we can keep them out of jail. And I think all of us can well attest to that. And that was Clint Duffy. Let me tell you about, uh, well, I'm not going to do it. There, there, I'll show you if you want to see it. There are some quotes from various wardens back in those days extolling the virtues of AA in prisons. Uh, I would simply invite you to take a look at that thing. It's in the literature. And then ask yourself one question. Would the staff and the warden at the institutions where I do service make similar comments today? be interesting to see. One of the complaints that I get from prison staff, I don't get many, but one of the complaints that I get is that when AA members come in, they'll have a tendency to walk past staff like their furniture and go hug an inmate. Now, we may know what that's the heart and soul of, but the guy standing there doesn't. And uh, anyway, take it for whatever it's worth. I said I'm an alcoholic very much. <laughs> and very much like Duff said, I was one of those who, uh, who woke up to the realization of where I'd been way too late. Found myself in a maximum custody penitentiary 24 years old, look back on a life that had happened so fast, it just seemed like a blur. I was never really conscious of who I was, where I was, what I had done, or any of that until I started to clear up. And I don't mean I was oblivious to it, but I mean that, that the reality of, of, of what my life was and had been just simply didn't settle in until the fog cleared. I was so busy, caught up in doing it, that I never realized I was in deep trouble till I was in way too deep. And so when I woke up in a maximum custody joint, I looked at a life that in 24 years had been about as devastating as life can get. 
done more damage than any human ever ever ought to do. Woke up to the realization I'd taken the lives of two people. As I'm sitting in there contemplating a life that probably never should have been, and a future that looked dismal at best. And strangely enough, in that course of that experience, the brand new life started. And I wasn't even looking for one. When I sat in that place, what I was looking for was what truly was to disappear. That's all I wanted to do. I had absolutely no thoughts of reconciliation or rehabilitation or anything else. I just wanted to disappear. What I, what I felt that I deserved to do. Oddly enough, in that setting, with that level of motivation, a brand new life started to emerge. and occurred very, very simply. I was at recommended AA shortly after I got into that institution by a staff member that probably knew nothing about alcoholism. He did a, an interview that he was trained to do at Michigan State. He did it just like they said. And what they taught him to do was that when you see a guy with this kind of a record and it's replete with booze, tell him to go over there. Well, that's exactly what he did. More than interesting to me, that was the first word I had ever heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. It was the first inkling I'd ever had that there was a, a, any source of treatment or help for alcoholics. It was a foreign concept to me. That was the first invitation I've ever had, and I've never had a drink since. A brand new one. Now, he, I didn't get healed, but that social worker, obviously. But that was what opened the door about having a friend of alcoholics and I would say, hey, guy, you got trouble with this. They fix that over there. Sometimes that's all it takes. It doesn't take deep-seated psychotherapy. It just takes somebody. <laughs> it, it just took somebody that, that, that knew enough to get me pointed in the right direction. And then they took over from there. I walked into my first meeting, Groundhog Day of 57. Didn't particularly want to join. Didn't believe I was an alcoholic. I was too young to be an alcoholic. I didn't tell it much, but I was way too smart to be an alcoholic. <laughs> I, I knew that one of these days, man, this thing going to come together. I knew that. And one day I'm going to wake up and it'll be just a bad dream, sure. Sat in meetings for, of AA for a good while. Thank God, I just want to allude to a few things that were critical to, to, to my recovery. One was a strong group of AA. The group I went into at Jackson Prison over in Jackson, Michigan, was probably one of the strongest groups I've ever seen in terms of carrying out the fifth tradition. And those guys did a magnificent job. They didn't crowd me, and they didn't charge after me and, and, and get set up a special program, but those guys did a magnificent job of helping me understand the deadly nature of alcoholism. They opened the door to my even starting to acknowledge that I had it, and they did a great job of explaining the design for living that we call Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll always be grateful to that group because they, they truly carried a message to me that was significant enough to turn around a, a, a life that had been like a runaway train. They, they, it was a group that had the quality of pushing me into action, which I think is critical to recovery. What our program, I've come to believe, is not about knowledge, self or otherwise. It's about experiential learning. That term's in the book at some place. Experiential learning. You know, we take the actions long before we feel like it. And that's experiential learning. And that's exactly what that group do. Nobody ever asked me if I thought it would be a good idea to go over and set up a group in the mental health clinic. 
They just said, that's where we're going. <laughs> Wonderful group. Sometimes we'd have ten meetings going on at the same time. <laughs> well, wasn't that many people, but we had multiple meetings going on. I don't know if it ever healed any of those folks, but I haven't had a drink since. Yeah, those are the things that bring about recovery. I found that guys in the joint get sober exactly the way guys on the street do. It's by getting involved in the process of taking the actions that bring about recovery, and that's exactly what happened for me. They uh, started to follow that program, and, and I am Russian. You know, I'm from North Carolina. I can't even talk this fast. I can't. <laughs> Matter of fact, I can't even think this fast. <laughs> but some stuff started to happen in the course of that action. It's amazing how powerful that thing is. Uh, I've got a guy with me, he's probably sitting in here today, that a year ago was one of the most sad, morose people I've seen in my life. Look at that boy today. Taking the actions. I thought you were going to help out. <laughs> <laughs> Taking the actions started to have its effect. And uh, yeah, I'm a great believer that Alcoholics Anonymous truly is a process. We, have, we refer to it as a, as a journey, not a destination. I tell you this, and it's God's truth, in 43 years I have never consciously solved one, prog uh, one problem in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not one. Not once have I sat there and said, boy, that's it. Now I got it. Not one time. Instead, what I do is I bring a problem in, I take the actions that will relieve it, and one day I look for it and it ain't there. <laughs> and instead, some marvelous, miraculous things happen. And uh, I just want to allude to a few of the things that happened. Most of the stuff that's happened to me of any real import happened with little or nothing contributed from me other than just taking the actions in the program. I got um, highly involved in the group, as, as I've already indicated. I, I, I learned that somebody had invented television while I was drunk, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Michigan State University had established a campus, not a real campus, but on television, they started sending the college there. All I had to do was pay tuition, buy books, and man, I was a, a card-toting freshman at Michigan State. Finished two years of college. I tell you this, they, uh, you hear some wonderful stuff at AA. Some of the, the most sage wisdom. <laughs> In a meeting one day, now I, I don't want to get off on other issues, but I was not an absolutely pure alcoholic. I, well, I mean, you know, it takes all kinds. But, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I took everything I knew anything about. <laughs> I, I wasn't a drug addict. I was just a, a, a hungry alcoholic. I was a greedy dude. And, and if it do anything to your head, I went for it. I didn't care what it was. One of the things I absolutely admired was speed. <laughs> God knows. I, and I'd get on that stuff and go about four days, and then I'd come off and just crash. I mean, for a long period of time. I'd look like a raccoon. My, my eyes would be so black. <laughs> well, that stuff does something to you, not just when it's in you. And for a long time, now this is not a very macho kind of a thing I'm going to share, but for a long time, I couldn't sleep in a dark room. <laughs> now, that ain't macho. When you're sitting in a maximum custody penitentiary with 6,000 hairy-legged convicts, <laughs> You don't want to be picked out as a wimp, you know, because <laughs> you'll wind up married to somebody. I, I, 
No. So I, uh, I had a problem. I couldn't sleep. If you turn the light off, I wasn't afraid of the dark, but my head would be like a kaleidoscope. I'd just see this explosion of colors, and, you know, if you get sleepy enough, you'll croak and go over. And then one day I was sitting in a meeting, <laughs> and a guy said, powerful stuff. You may want to write it down. He said, if you can't sleep, stay awake. <laughs> Is that great or what? <laughs> well, it's sense, isn't it? It's like most of our stuff. It ain't heavy. <laughs> it's got a lot of depth to it. And I tell you the thing, when he said that, that made sense. I finished two years at Michigan State University while I couldn't sleep. Great stuff. A lot of a lot of miraculous things happened. I, I, when this program kicked in, I became a guy in a maximum custody penitentiary that truly knew freedom for the first time in his life because this dude worked for me. And I became a free man in every way that matters except physically. And that's probably the least important. And, and experienced the first unadulterated joy and worth ever had in my life. Just simply doing these things. I wasn't campaigning for anything. I just found a solution, and I loved the solution as much as I loved booze. And, and what, I, uh, what happened, I just want to tell you a, a, just a couple of miraculous things, and I'm going to get out of Wallace's way because he gets mad if I talk too long. <laughs> that I'm a guy, I'm a very practical type of fellow. I, I like to have profound stuff about like that stay awake. And, and I'm a guy who has experienced some genuine miracles in his life. But I have a rather pragmatic kind of definition for miracles that explains it to me. Miracles are what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And with <laughs> without either of them, it won't happen. Now, God has to take care of the introduction, but it's a, it's a profound kind of insight for me about some of the things that happen when preparation. You know, if I'm not prepared, I won't even see the opportunity. And if I don't reach it, it doesn't matter how prepared I am. It's when preparation and opportunity come together. It's like getting sober. I think it requires a marvelous miracle of timing to reach that point of no return. Two times I don't want to talk to a drunk. One's when he's drinking, and the other one is when he ain't. <laughs> yeah, I like to talk to him when he's in that sort of deep, dark valley and he doesn't care whether he lives or dies or whether you talk to him or not. I love to see a drunk in that condition. That's preparation. Then if opportunity, if opportunity knocks on the door, he might answer you. So, uh, so, stuff started to happen. I was recommended for special parole. I didn't even know they had such a thing. Happens once in 10,000 cases. All I'm doing is practicing A. Now, I didn't make it. I don't blame him. If I'd have had a guy like me standing from him, I wouldn't have paroled him either. But I was recommended. What a tremendous honor. And that was an affirmation of what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. They uh, had almost assured that I'd go out on my first, uh, my first scheduled review, and I, and I did. I, three and a half years after I went in, I was paroled on condition I go to North Carolina. And uh, I was, <laughs> wasn't, too, wasn't too sure about that, but... But I was sure enough that I wanted out of that place. When I went in there, I hated that place with a purple passion. Some clowns told me that I would get used to it. It obviously takes more than three and a half years. <laughs> I hated it worse the day I walked out than I did the day I walked in. And when I walked out of that gate, deep in my gut, 
I had a commitment that was a no-nonsense commitment that I would never go through that again. And what I meant was not willful, belligerent kind of stuff. What I meant was that I would do whatever it took. And I didn't care what it was. I meant that, and I mean that today. Well, that was important to me. I went out the street, uh, got immediately active, uh, got caught up, uh, and, and, and miracles continued to happen. I went to a prison two weeks after I was out, became outside sponsor of the AA group at that prison two months after I was out. Same period of time, many of you know. I've got a lot of old friends in here, many of you know. But I always like to tell it because I think there's a message in it. When I'd left Jackson, I had letters that big on my parole papers. This man never drink alcoholic beverages. This man never drive an automobile. I accepted that as a fact of life. My pro supervisor came to me one day and he said, Tommy, will act as say anything? And I said, yes, sir. And I thought he was going to tell me to slow down. I knew it wouldn't. He said, wouldn't it help you if you could drive? And I said, yes, sir, but I can't, as if he didn't know. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, uh, well, let me take a look. He asked me to meet him uptown, and I walked in, and I was handed a driver's license. Didn't even take a test. <laughs> I mean, written, road, verbal, nothing. He didn't even ask me if I could drive. <laughs> didn't pay for it <laughs> that's got to be against the law I, and there is no way <laughs> but I've been driving for a long long time on, on that illegal license I'll tell you what I really believe it is it's just one of those there's miracles I talked about that, um, that when God's got work for us to do the walls come down I don't care what they are and uh I know that not only on the, the evidence of my own life, but the lives of many others. I was elected DCM, a trusted servant in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I left wondering if I'd ever be trusted by anybody. Two years after I was out, I got a phone call from the state capitol guy asked me if I'd be interested in going to work in corrections. I wanted to ask him if he had the right number, but he, <laughs> but he had to, well, either, either number would have been. And, uh, Asked me if sure he knew who he was talking to. He said, we know you better than you know yourself. <laughs> 911. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and sure enough, I knew deep down that that would never happen. But sure enough, it did. And I became the first ex-con in history hired in a supervisory position in a correction system. And uh, an unbelievable thing, an unbelievable experience. And hard, hard to accommodate. Uh, it was easy to accommodate. It, it was a challenge, to put it mildly. Hard to be able to talk shop when there ain't nobody else. And, uh, and I loved it. I loved it. You couldn't believe how much. I didn't take a vacation for nine years. And, uh, and then after I'd been in the system a few years, one day the head of the system asked me to stop by his office. And he said, Tom, I'd like for you to take an assignment. And I said, yes, sir. Normally he would want me to pinch hit for him speaking somewhere. And I said, what is it? And he said, I'd like you to take over an institution as warden. And, uh, and I said, I told him, I said, boss, I don't know about that, man. I, <laughs> I don't want to be the man. You know, I, I want to be mud wrestling with the guys. I, I don't want to be doing that junk. I want to be the good guy. And, uh, and, I, and then I think I saw that with, with, a, with a position like that, I might be able to have some influence to do some things that I thought needed to be done. And that proved to be the case. I'm very, very grateful for that career. I'm just wrapping it up. I'll be retiring this year. And um, when I look back on that career, I don't want to dwell on it much, but I'll just simply say that part of my legacy will be that some things changed in North Carolina 
that may not have changed if I hadn't been there. Probably, probably wouldn't have changed if I didn't have this program lighting the fire to do something. Now, I didn't, I mean, you know, they don't recruit wardens out of maximum custody joints. I think you know that. <laughs> they, uh, I did bother to finish my education in correctional administration and, uh, and uh, to outwork anybody I ever met. I wasn't ambitious. I just had the zeal to do it. And um, what a marvelous career that's been. I, I want to introduce Wallace by, by merging over into that a little bit. One of the things that I found early on when, uh, when I took that was exactly what I feared, that when you become the man, I don't care how nice you are, you're still the man. It doesn't make any difference. And I knew that when I went in, and I found it verified very quickly because it was just routine for somebody to slide up to me who was an old AA buddy and say, hey, <laughs> wonderful to see you. Wonder if you can't do a little something for me. <laughs> well, I saw right away that I had to make up my mind if I was going to be fish or fowl. And so I made up my mind that I would take my place in the professional ranks and be the man. Now, I was pretty particular about what kind of man I was, but it was very important for me to do that. I had a, a young inmate walk up to me one day, and I was standing out on the front porch of the institution. He, he looked at me. I could tell he wanted to say something, but I said, how you doing? He came over. He said, are you really the warden of this place? <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah, I mean, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do that thing. And I said, why do you ask? <laughs> He said, well, I've met a bunch of them, and, and you just don't seem like them. <laughs> I could have kissed you. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a high compliment, you know, because I didn't want to be off in a barrier somewhere. And so I've always had the propensity to, to, to not take the barrier too seriously. Yeah, I'm the man, bottom line. If you get out of line, I'll, I'll take you down in a heartbeat. And, and, and I think folks knew that. You know, folks who look gentle and lovable also have high expectations of people. And uh, so, but I've always had, had the, uh, the tendency to peep over the fence and, and do some stuff that probably was out of character for most wardens. One of them was working with this old boy over here. And uh, he and I met, uh, oh, geez, 37 years ago, I think. And uh, I guess we kind of sneaked and worked with each other for a long time. I, I want to introduce him with, with one, one particular story. I guess it's just on my mind. Experience. He tells it probably different because he's a lot older than me. But <laughs> in 1965, I was going to my first international in Toronto. And uh, I've been telling Wallace about it. He was the artist for a publication we had. And I'd been telling them about it, sort of, sort of giving him a word picture of what it would be like. I'd never been, but I knew better than he did, I think. And uh, so our, our coupled imaginations produced a center page for, for that publication. And it was his vision of what that would be, what it would be like. And I, I did something that to the untrained eye would have seemed a little cruel. Because I was talking with a guy who, 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 who was intended to never get out. I mean, ever. <clears throat> so I watched him. Watched him doing that. And I said, oh boy, let me tell you something. If you keep doing this thing right, 
excuse me, I suddenly have a lump in my throat. And if, 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 if you keep doing this right, and maybe if I keep doing it right, one of these days we'll go to one of these things together. Well, <laughs> now, that, that would seem like a very cruel, excuse me, a very cruel thing to do to a guy that was never supposed to get out. But I believe that. And in 1985, 20 years later, <coughs> I was getting ready to go to Montreal to our 50th anniversary. Phone rang, and it was that old ugly boy. And he said, he said, hey, Chief, good, he always called me Chief, and I'm not even an Indian. <laughs> he, he, he said, hey, Chief, uh, good news. My parole officer said I can, uh, <coughs> that I can go to Toronto or Montreal with you if I go with you. Well, I already had my plane tickets, and it's about 30 minutes, 30 days, not 30 minutes, 30 days before I'm supposed to go. And I said, all right, we'll get you a ticket, and we'll go. And he said, oh, no, no, I can't get on an airplane, man. I'm just barely used to being on the ground. And said, ain't no way I'm going to get on, a, on an airplane. And I said, oh, God. And so I canceled my, 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 my flight. And here we go, heading to the foreign country. And uh, what a great trip. And I think he was probably the most excited guy in Montreal. <laughs> Except one. <coughs> well, I don't know if there's a point to that or not. There are probably a lot of points to that. But the point is that what we do <coughs> sometimes looks like a kind of a, a, a